My name is Matthew, one of the pastors here. It's a joy to gather with you. It's a joy to sit underneath the Word of Christ along with you as well. Uh, you that are gathered here, you that are tuning in online, it's a joy. Um, if you would, turn into your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. That's where we're going to be for the duration of this message. I don't uh, claim to be a scientist, nor do I claim to know very much at all about magnets, except that I do find them interesting. They're strange. It's this, this invisible force that scientists would tell us that even is across this globe. It's why you can magnetize a needle and it will point north. There are these forces at work that we don't even, that we're not even aware of. They're invisible down at like the particle level. Somehow particles are being charged either positively or negatively. And to bring that a little bit closer to home, you know, the, a lot of kids' toys have magnets in them. Uh, we got magna blocks in our house. We love them. You can build all kinds of stuff on different colored shapes that have these magnets that are on the outer edges so that when you get them near each other, they click together and you can build all sorts of uh, structures and creatures and whatever it is that you want to build. Uh, but there's also the reality that these magnets, if, if the, if the uh, polarity gets switched, what happens? Instead of them attracting, being attracted to one another, they actually repulse one another. And so you'll put two blocks on uh, together, and for some reason, the, beyond my knowledge, the polarity gets switched, and now this block will not connect. And so it's, it's just interesting. There, there could be one, like either a positive or negative charge, and depending on the positive or negative in the object, if that was the subject, the object either has positive or negative it's either going to be attracted to that polarity or repulsed from that polarity. One source, two different reactions, two, two polar opposite reactions, no pun intended. And that's exactly what we see in the way that Jesus relates with people, the way that people relate to Jesus. There are these different polarities at work. And Jesus, what we get to see today, which is breathtaking and astonishing is that in terms of uh, polarities of sin and righteousness, who, who might you think Jesus is attracted to? Is he attracted? Is, is the force of God attracted to the sinner or is the force of God attracted to the righteous? We might think the righteous, right? God's holy, God's righteous. He would be attracted to the righteous. But what we get to see today is that actually the reverse is true. Jesus is attracted to sinners, and sinners are attracted to Jesus. And Jesus is not attracted to the self-righteous, right? The truly, truly, it's not just righteous as we'll get into today, not just righteous on the surface, but a deeper reality of self-righteousness. He's not attracted to them, and nor are self-righteous people attracted to Jesus. And so we're going to look at this today. We're going to see both audiences today. An audience that is attracted to Jesus, the sinner, and an audience that is not attracted to Jesus, the self-righteous. And the hope is that we will see that all of us indeed are sinners. That all of us indeed have a great need for Jesus and will be attracted to Him. That we would truly see who He is and His great love and His great grace and we would run after Him and follow Him and enjoy Him. Let's pray as we get going. 
Father, we thank You for Your Word and we give You this time today. We ask You to speak to us according to Your will, through Your Word, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Open up our hearts and minds to see the glory of Jesus. We pray, God, that today we would be attracted. We would be attracted to Him, to You. We would not be repulsed. Would you, would you humbly, graciously allow us to humbly acknowledge our need and to receive Jesus on our behalf? We pray that you would conform us to the likeness of your Son, convict us of sin, challenge us, comfort us. We ask all these things for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen. The first thing we see here is that Jesus is attracted to sinners. There's an attraction between Jesus and sinners. Verse 13, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to Him, and He was teaching them. And as He passed by, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And He said to him, Follow Me. And He rose and followed Him. I'm going to stop right there. Mark is setting the stage here for this another story that we're seeing through this gospel narrative. And he takes us all the way out to the sea where Jesus is teaching. And he's become very popular. People are flocking to Jesus for healing, to see the demonstration of his miracles, to hear his teaching. All eyes are on this man, this rabbi, right? The buzz is out there. Everybody is aware of this man. And so all eyes are on him. What is he going to do next? What is the kingdom of God like? What is this teaching that He's bringing us? All eyes are on Him waiting and watching to see what He's going to do. And so He is walking out by the sea and He comes in contact with a tax collector. There's this big crowd following Jesus and there's Jesus. He's coming. He's he's probably walking ahead of the crowd. Everybody's following behind Jesus. And there's this tax collector booth out there. It was a a very lucrative spot for him to be right there by the sea. And what's important about this story for us to understand is that tax collectors were, they were the ultimate traders. Everybody knew tax collectors. They were the ultimate traders, ultimate sellouts. They were Jews who'd actually given up their heritage in order to to align themselves with, with Rome and with money. And so a tax collector's profession was to collect tax from the Jewish people. And so they would basically apply, they would, they would say how much money they could probably get from uh, their people, from the Jews, and Herod or whoever in power would hire them. And, and here's how it worked. They would have to meet their quota, but then anything else on top of that quota that they were able to extract from the people, they got to keep for themselves. That's how they made money. They made money by stealing it from their own people. So the Jews couldn't stand these tax collectors. They were were repulsed by these tax collectors. They were despicable. They were about the most bottom of the barrel that you could get morally in that culture. That's why we even see in a minute there was tax collectors and sinners. It's like this is a subset of sinners 
And so they were doing this, and it was extremely lucrative for them. They would make tons of money. They would, they would do very well for themselves. But it came at a cost. As I've already mentioned, they're turning their backs on their Jewish heritage. They would say goodbye to their family. They would say goodbye to life in the temple, life, life following uh, God in that way. And they would then align themselves to Rome. And so if, they, if you wore this, and in this culture, you were considered unclean. In the ceremonial culture of the, of the, Jewish, the Jewish religious system, tax collectors were unclean. You wouldn't want to get near them. They were so dirty that actually if you got near them, your entire house would become unclean for some matter of time or until there was some sort of atonement that would have to be made. So you wanted to keep your distance from these tax collectors. They were so filthy. They will make you filthy. And so again... Setting the stage, there's Jesus. He's walking. The whole crowd is, is looking at Jesus. What's he going to do? Jesus comes up to this tax collector, the most morally filthy person on the planet. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes over to him and says, Levi, follow me. Follow me. And Levi gets up and follows Jesus immediately. This is not just like a it's not just follow me at a distance. When Jesus says, follow me, he's like, come in to close relationship with me. You're not going to follow me at a distance. Follow me as in be with me. Be with me, Levi. Levi would have known about Jesus. He would have caught some of the buzz. And so he's aware at some level. We see him just immediately get up and follow this man, Jesus. He's now making another sacrifice. This time he's not letting go of his Jewish heritage. He's letting go of his lucrative business. Once he lets go of that, there's no returning to being a tax collector. You can't go back. But there's something about the call of Jesus on Levi. When Levi apprehends it rightly, he says, yes, I'm going. And it's not legalistic. It's not burdensome. It's joyful. He's pumped about this. Levi is pumped about following Jesus. We get to see a little bit of where this is going because the next scene we see in verse 15, and as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Basically, this, what this is saying is that Levi goes to throw a party. He wants to celebrate. This guy, Jesus, just asked me to follow him, and I'm following him, and Jesus is awesome. I love being with him. So what am I going to go do? I'm going to go tell all my friends to come. Let's celebrate this man, Jesus. So he's going to go to all of his tax, his tax buddies, tax collector buddies, his cronies, his other friends. Let's come together. Jesus is coming to my house. i got to tell you about him. He's unreal. He's coming to my house, and I want you to be there. And all these guys say, I'll be there. I'll be there. There's an attraction that's happening here in this moment. Jesus is attracted to the tax collector sinner, Levi. And Levi and the rest of the, the sinning world here that we get to see in this picture is attracted to Jesus. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary meal that's happening. 
This is a feast. You don't recline for just a casual little meal together. When you're reclining, it's hugely symbolic. Reclining, reclining around a table, a meal, is saying so much. So much symbolism is happening right here. When you recline at others around a table, you are saying to those individuals, I am with you. You are with me. We are one and the same. We are family together. It's a message that looks across the table and says, I love you. I value you. I desire you. I I desire intimacy and relationship with you. That's what that table is representing. Normally, there would be so much distance between the righteous and the sinner. Normally, so much distance would be here. Not just physical distance, but there's so, so much spiritual distance that you would just keep your distance. And so these sinners, they are not used to this. They are aware of their sin. They're aware of their moral status in the culture. What they are not used to are the religious folks coming near to them. And so this is earth-shattering for them. Not just that they would be welcome to sitting around a table with other people that share their moral status. They are around the table with the chief rabbi. The righteous one is sitting in Levi's house at the table with them. He's breaking all the rules and showing his love for them. It's kind of like in COVID today. There's this distance that we have. And so we're getting used to it. I mean, we've been at this thing for a, a year and we're just, we're just not used to intimacy anymore, which is awful, terrific. But it's imagining that day when all this goes away and somebody breaks through that barrier and they give you a hug. And there's freedom in that hug. And there's intimacy and joy in that hug. The relationship comes close. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's coming close. Whatever barrier or gap there was, Jesus is breaking it because His love is so great. His love is so great. Does this story draw us to worship of Jesus? Does this story draw us to come to Jesus? To wonder at His love and grace? You today, maybe you feel like a sinner. Maybe you feel like you are too far off from God. That is not true. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Jesus loves you. Just as He loves these people in this story, He loves you today. He is telling you, He is speaking through the Word today. I love you. I desire you. I treasure you. There is a place at my table with your name tag on it, and you are invited to come. You don't need to clean yourself up. There are no conditions once you get to the table. It's a table of grace. Grace upon grace. Unconditional acceptance and love and value. That's what Jesus is saying to every one of us this morning.
Let sin not stop us from coming to the Lord's table. And then we see Levi's entire life is transformed. Levi, who gets a name change, oftentimes you might get a name change when you take a new career, but it's also very symbolic in the fact that now his old identity is gone. He becomes Matthew. Levi becomes Matthew, and Mark will refer to him as Matthew from here on out. Levi, the tax collector who was stealing wealth from from his own people for his own sake and for Rome, from God's people, now is enlisted in service of God. His entire life is transformed. The old is gone, the new has come. He's got a new king, a new purpose, and he's got the fullness of everlasting life. Matthew would end up writing one of the Gospels and a proclaimer of the gospel of grace to all mankind. God wants to do that with your life today. He wants to forgive you. He's for you. He loves you as grace covers you as your sin. And he not only wants to do that, he wants to take your life and he wants to give it completely new purpose and higher purpose and purpose filled with more glory. Maybe we'd be drawn to this Jesus because he is drawn to us in this way. There is an attraction here. There's not only attraction, there is also repulsion. We see that next. The self-righteous, there is a repulsion between Jesus and the self-righteous. Verse 16. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So not everyone loves the fact that Jesus is around. There's an incoming polarity, and it's similar. It's similar in terms of its righteousness, at least perception of righteousness. There's no need for Jesus, and that creates repulsion. Those that are repulsed were, are the Pharisees here in this story. To understand the Pharisees, they are like the conservative religious all-stars of the day. People didn't look down on the Pharisees. We kind of often do today, because we have different context and understanding, but you've got you to understand that, that they looked, everybody looked up to the Pharisees. I mean, they were the all-stars. They were the conservative religious all-stars. They were all about the law of Moses. They were all about obedience to God, at least so they thought. And they were so concerned about this. They were so passionate and zealous for obeying God's law that they had laws upon laws upon laws. They built all kinds of these moral fences uh, with, with at least some superficial reason that they wanted to obey God. And so they spent a lot of time doing this. They're very serious about it in this way. And here comes this guy, Jesus, a rabbi who's teaching the word of God. And Jesus is breaking all those rules, all the traditions and all the laws that they give them that themselves to. They're being broken right in front of their eyes. Jesus is breaking them. And they're thinking to themselves, I mean, holy people don't hang out with sinners. Right? He's going to get contaminated. He's going to get polluted, much less hang out with Gentile sinners. Like, we don't do that. We don't go near Gentiles. We stay as far away from them as possible. 
But here they are, they're looking on from a distance, right? They're not inside, they're not inside at the meal, they're not, they're not enjoying the relationship with Jesus, and they're not there in a posture to, to really learn and worship Jesus. No, they're on the outside looking in through windows and doors. They're kind of creeping around, they're spying on Jesus. There he is in there eating with sinners and tax collectors. We don't do that. They ask, why does he hang out with tax collectors and sinners? Based upon the trajectory of Mark's gospel, I don't think this is a genuine, it's not genuine interest. Not really trying to find the answer to that. It's the growing seed. It's a seed of of resentment and and bitterness and anger and hostility towards Jesus. It's just going to grow and grow and grow until ultimately they decide they need to kill Jesus. They don't like the righteous one, Jesus, hanging out with the sinner. Jesus hears this. He turns to his disciples. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus answers them with a proverb. And he's basically saying, I'm the doctor and I'm here for the sick. What good is a doctor around a bunch of healthy people? Right? I mean, there are well checks, but it's not where doctors are ultimately needed. It's not why doctors come to do a bunch of well checks. Doctors are most needed where there is great sickness. And he interprets it along sinful categories and righteous categories. He says, I'm here for sinners. I'm not here for the righteous. Not here for the righteous. Now, is Jesus here affirming their righteousness? No, not at all. Very far from it, as I've already mentioned. This is a superficial righteousness. This is a self-affirmed righteousness. It's an indictment. It's an indictment on them. He's, he, in some way, he's calling out, he's calling out their self-righteousness if they will have ears to hear it. So while on the surface they might appear to be zealous for God and have all this holiness, beneath the surface they're actually incredibly, incredibly sick. They just don't know it. That's the point. Self-righteous people just don't know that they're sinners. They think that they're righteous. That's the problem. The Bible is very clear. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sinners know they've sinned. The self-righteous don't know it. But both are so sick. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you're not going to acknowledge that you're sick, I'm not here for you. You should recognize. You should recognize I'm here for sinners. It's what God's love is for. It's what God's grace is for. And instead, these guys are walking around like, like healthy people with cancer. Just all inside of them, they have no idea about it. They do need a well check to discover that they are terminally ill. Beneath the surface, it's that cancer of justification, self-justification, uh, our own righteous deeds, uh, a fixation with ourselves. That is a cancer. This is the same group of people that Jesus would call whitewashed tombs. You might look really good on the outside, but God, 
who knows your heart, sees that you're nothing but death on the inside. I mean, that's challenging for us. We love external righteousness. We love appearance. We love image. And God says, I'm not about image. You might be able to fool your family and your church and your community, but you cannot fool me. And if you're trusting in yourself, be very, very careful because you are cutting yourself off from me. When the love of God shows up in front of these people, the love of God that would break through barriers, the love of God that would go to this extent to bless and to grace these sinners, the love of God that would go even to the grave to bless sinners. When that shows up, it makes these self-righteous Pharisees mad. The grace of God is a threat to the religious spirit. It's a threat to our own kingdoms, our own kingdoms of righteousness, our own kingdoms of goodness. We all have them. And the grace of God is a threat to it. Will we push back today? Or will we allow our own kingdoms to crumble in light of God's grace and mercy? There's two challenges I have for us specifically. Number one, do we need Jesus this morning? Do you need Jesus? Will you acknowledge your great need for salvation? That you do deserve death. And that you need a Savior, a, a saving substitute who will die in your place. Who will make you fully righteous who will take you to glory forever and ever and ever. Will we acknowledge that need? And here's the beauty. The beauty of the gospel says that if you will confess that, if you will confess and you will reach out to the Lord for help, He promises to save you. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. No distinction. But will you go there? Will you go to that place of need? Secondly, are we following Jesus? Are we following him? Does the church look more like Jesus in this story or more like the self-righteous Pharisees in this story? What does the church look more like? Jesus came into the world. Sinners did not scare Jesus. He went to them. He pursued them. He was among them. He was with them. He fellowshiped with them. He was attracted to sinners. And, and get this, sinners loved being around Jesus. I think that is hugely convicting for us. Are we going into the world like that? Are we scared? Are we scared of the world? I'm not saying we don't stick to our convictions. We're not going to compromise. But are we going? Are we touching 
Are we helping? Are we ministering? Are we pulling back? And would unbelievers say that they enjoy being around you? That's convicting. They would flock to Jesus. Are they running from you as soon as they find out you're a Christian or you open your mouth? They run away from you? Walls go up? There is something about Jesus that, they were, that, that sinners are attracted to, that unbelievers are attracted to. Jesus and only Jesus came in the fullness of truth and grace. And we are to do the very same thing. I'm not saying it's easy. It is so difficult. And we're always fall, uh, falling off into ditches on either side. But we are called to walk the narrow road of truth and grace. I think the point I'm getting out of this story is oftentimes our passion for truth can so easily eclipse our demonstration of grace. And that is so sad. So incredibly sad. Because it's not the gospel. And it's not just truth that saves. It's grace too. What are we going to do? Get to heaven and be right? Only? We're just going to go to bed at night feeling good about ourselves because we were right? We won the argument. We said what we needed to say on social media. Really, is that going to help us sleep better at night? Or you know what? We entered into the crazy navigation of all this to truly love people. Not, let, not letting go of our convictions, coming with truth, but I'm doing this in such a way that I'm trying to offer grace so these people would behold Jesus, that I would not be a stumbling block to them seeing Jesus, the grace and the truth of Jesus. That's the way the church is to be postured in this world, mediating the presence of God from heaven, from Jesus, through into, out into the world. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. And as we short-circuit that, we short-circuit the demonstration of Jesus. Then what are we asking people to do? Come in and know a lot of facts or be overwhelmed by the grace of Almighty God and live a life of worship. Otherwise, I mean, you don't blame, you don't blame people for not wanting to join the church. I wouldn't blame them. Again, I'm not saying we sacrifice truth, but they should be looking in and seeing a party. We read that earlier in our confession. Because they see the way that we love one another and love them. That is hugely, it's a huge attractional force to them. One scholar put it this way, I was convicted by this. He says, while we may have good intentions in our moral standards, we may inadvertently find ourselves developing an entire subculture that is increasingly insulated from and cut off from the world, diminishing our witness and missionary effectiveness. Is that us today? The only way for us to move forward is to return to our need, is to return humbly to our great need, that we do not stand on our own kingdoms. We are just as bad a sinners as anybody else. And then to turn our eyes once again afresh to our great Savior 
and receive His grace. Take our seat back at the table of grace. And it's only in feasting at that table then do we turn and we take that feasting and that celebration to the world. A free invitation full of grace, full of truth, to come and enjoy the greatest banquets of all banquets. Enjoy Jesus. That is the way we must repent this morning. If we find ourselves on the sinful, self-condemning end, thinking that we're not worthy, come to Jesus. We are worthy because He has died for us. And if we find ourselves over on this spectrum and we don't think that we need Jesus, well, there's opportunity for repentance there. Humbly acknowledge your need. Jesus has already died for you. If you will come. And then, church, as we feast, we will be the light on a hill, the city on a hill that will create, hopefully, the power of the Holy Spirit, a missionary force that is bringing Christ to the world in a way that is full of attraction. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for grace. The unthinkable reality, God, that you do love sinners. You love sinners so much that you paid the ultimate price. You were not content to have us distant from yourself. You purchased us. You redeemed us. You, you made us into right relationship with you and the Father. Lord, we thank you. God, and we repent now of self-righteousness that may dwell in our hearts, God that sets itself up as a rival to your grace, as a rival to your kingdom. We repent of that now, God. And we ask, Lord, that you would help Harvest Church and your global church to be faithful, to be faithful to walk in your footsteps, to enter into the homes of the sinners, to be in relationship with unbelievers, to bring the good news to the whole world that you might be glorified. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.